So the, uh, the topic uh, which is written in your program is slightly different than this. That topic was not one I submitted. It was the dean of uh, education whose name shall remain unnamed for the moment. Uh, but he, <laughs> the merging of first world quality with third world resources wasn't PC. But anyway, um, I'm putting it as achieving quality with limited resources, cost-effective care in low-income countries. That's our topic for today. The, object, the learning objectives are the same, but change the wording. As people are trickling in that we're stuck out there in that traffic, um, just had a, uh, an encounter with uh, my wife this morning that was very fruitful. So, I don't know. I mean, this, this is interesting. If you're wondering where we're going with this. Um, so, she's, as, as our spouses do, they help us to see our blind sights. And she said, you know, when you speak, it's probably better to not overplay the people you've worked with, the things you've done, blah, blah. And, and she's right, of course. Um, you don't need to name drop. It was something you said. And, uh, and so then, you know, I, I flipped on my uh, Bible in One Year app, and Nikki Gumble this morning is writing, that you turn it on and it says, it's all about who you know. <laughs> it, he tells a story of uh, uh, during the Civil War, a, a soldier comes to the White House and uh, can't get access, wants to talk to the president. So he's bummed. He goes and sits on a park bench, and this little boy comes along, and the boy engages him in conversation. The guy says, I really wanted to talk to the president or somebody uh, about the war and so on. And the little boy says, yeah, come with me. And he goes around to the back of the White House and walks in the back door and walks into the Oval Office. And Lincoln turns and says, morning, Tad, can I help you? So it's all about who you know. In this case, it's about knowing the sun. That's why we're here, right? That's why we're here. We're here to glorify the Son. We're here to make his name famous in order that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, might be worshipped uh, across the world. And communities will be transformed. Our world will be redeemed. That's what this is about. This is a very clinically oriented talk. But don't be uh, fooled by that disguise. It's just a piece of what we should be doing in mission hospitals and clinics, and uh, community development work. See there, I stepped on my tail all around the world, and that's, uh, that's where this, this talk is headed. Well, it is now officially 8 o'clock, so I'm, I'm Dr. Steve Mary. Uh, I'm a family doc, worked some in Africa, mostly in French-speaking West Africa, and I've been at Mayo Clinic for about 10 years now on staff where I direct the Mayo International Health Program and, and encourage our residents and medical students to go into global missions and have had the joy of seeing many of them do so. And we are talking about how to do good quality care in a resource-limited setting in a, in a rational way uh, this morning. Before we begin, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we <coughs> pray that as we ponder these things, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that what we think of, what we plan from this meeting, uh, would come to fruition only to glorify you 
In Jesus' name, amen. I have no disclosures. Our learning objectives are to look at some chronic diseases, but also some acute diseases and surgery, and, and look at how we can do care uh, in a cost-effective, uh, rational way. What we don't want to be doing is just exporting U.S. treatment guidelines. There is a wave of thinking out there that the way we should do care is how we do it here when we go there, because we would want to be treated just like that. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a foiled golden rule, uh, but we, we can't do that. We need to look at the uh, Ministry of Health protocols and have a close attention to the benefit and the cost. The overview slide is that if you look at the whole care process from its beginning to its end, in light of the benefits expressed in disability-adjusted life years, and in light of the resources of the country, and I would propose the patient personally, uh, that you will be practicing cost-effective care. Uh, my disclaimer is that I'm a clinician. I'm not an economist. I have a son who's that, or becoming one. I'm going to adjust these slightly so you can see them a bit better, perhaps. And, uh, and my second disclaimer is, is that um, cost-effectiveness evaluations are based on a lot of assumptions, and, uh, and so you'll see through some of those, but I think these are reasonable. And uh, thirdly, and this is important, this is meant to be provocative. So there are some things I'll say that are probably difficult for some of you to hear, uh, and I would encourage you to then ask questions about that so we can engage in dialogue. Cost-effectiveness analysis from this Harvard Business School working paper uh, it would propose that there is this care delivery value chain that begins with prevention and testing and staging of a disease, delaying its progression, initiating therapy, continuing disease management, right through the management of deterioration. If you look at all diseases, chronic or acute, in that light, then you can start to make some decisions about how to treat them and whether even to treat them. Cost-effectiveness analysis looks for best buys. So, for example, for cardiovascular disease prevention, it's smoking cessation. Huge benefit for a little bit of money put in, not meds like statins, which have a small benefit relative to their cost. It expresses these decisions of what to do in terms of cost versus benefit. So that's usually cost in U.S. dollars uh, versus disability-adjusted life years. And, uh, gained and uh, requires, therefore, a clear knowledge or at least some sort of a gestalt about what those numbers are that are the numbers needed to treat for a person to benefit as well as the numbers needed to treat for a person to be harmed. So we could just say, so here you are. You're now in your clinic exam room at your mission hospital and the patient comes in. You could just say, I'm going to treat them the way I would be treated or the way I would treat someone back in the U.S. And then if they pay for it, that's their business. So willingness to pay as determined by whether they go and get the prescription, whether they can afford it, and if they don't pick it up, that's their business. I'm ethically absolved of all guilt. 
Uh, or uh, we can look at it in terms of what is one disability adjust, adjusted life year worth? So the WHO uh, uses a one to three times the per capita gross domestic product and says one to three times the gross domestic product is what a disability adjusted life year is worth. So if I'm treating you and uh, in your country the gross domestic product is $1,000, then somewhere between one and $3,000 would be a reasonable amount of money to spend to save one year of life that is free of disability, so adjusted for disability. I have some data at the bottom for those of you not familiar with disability, just the life years. You can look at that uh, afterwards, but it's basically an adjustment factor that says, hey, you know, if I get hit by a semi and uh, Dennis at Bingo saves my life, but... I can't walk, I can't talk, I can't move, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm paralyzed, then my life is not quite a full life from that point on. It's therefore adjusted downward in terms of its, its uh, utility, worth, value to me. Case example. So here we have a hypertensive Ghanaian farmer. He's 55 years old, he drinks heavily, and he comes in, here he is, Blood pressure is taken, 159 over 99. He's got a body mass index that is a bit high, rotund gentleman, and uh, his exam is otherwise normal. So do we, A, recommend lifestyle changes, blood pressure checks by a community health worker, and return or see the community health clinic nurse if consistently elevated blood pressure above 160 over 100? Or do we do that but start some hydrochlorothiazide? I mean, after all, maybe he's never going to come in again. This is our opportunity, our window. Let's get it going. Or B, because we're going to start a diuretic, should we be checking his renal function, potassium, glucose, make sure he's not diabetic, because then we get this whole panoply of other things we should be doing. Uh, urinalysis, CBC, check the ECG. That would be the U.S.-based workup, right? New hypertensive, you want to look for end-organ damage, maybe you should do that. Or C, uh, do that, plus B, check his cholesterol, start a statin, put him on aspirin if elevated. Okay, who says A? <clears throat> who says B? Do A, but get that the med going. Who says A, B, but also C, get those labs done? Got to work this up. Come on, chickens. <laughs> and who wants to do the whole enchilada? Get that cholesterol level start a statin, put them on aspirin, you know where this is going. Okay, so hypertension per JNC7 and WHO is, you know, normal uh, somewhere under 120 over 80, right? Pre-hypertension is a bit above that, and then we get to 140 over 90, and above that, that's stage one, and over 160 over 100 is stage two. <clears throat> now, in Africa, there is a lot of hypertension, uh, and it, from this study from Tanzania, one of the better uh, healthcare system designed places, they've back in 2000 looked at hypertension's, hypertension's prevalence, and they said about 18% or so in urban areas, a little less in rural, are detected. A little, little more than half of that being treated, and way, 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 way less than uh, that being controlled hypertension. And this is important because hypertension is, in fact, the leading cause of congestive, congestive heart failure in Africa. It's not ischemic heart disease like here. It's hypertensive 
cardiomyopathy, representing somewhere uh, around 21% of the total, followed by rheumatic heart disease and other uh, viral, postpartum, et cetera, cardiomyopathies. Now, so 140 over 90 is hypertension. Should we treat all those even if they don't have risk factors? If you do that, you're looking at a number needed to treat of around 700 people per year to save one cardiovascular death, all right? So you're taking a, a die, dice, whatever, uh, that has 700 sides when Mrs. Smith is sitting there, Mr. Smith, the 55-year-old Ghanaian, uh, and you're rolling it and saying, okay, you got about a 1 in 700 chance of benefiting in the next year if I treat you for this uh, disease. Now, if this guy is making, you know, uh, somewhere around, well, we'll get to that in the next slide. I don't remember what I chose in the next slide. Um, but um, so it matters what he's making, in my mind. To the WHO, the way they do this is they say, what's the GDP? But the GDP is skewed with all these rich people in the city. This guy's a farmer. You know, most of those farmers in, in Guinea are making 200, 300 a year disposable income. How is he going to afford that kind of treatment? You know, if he's paying about 50 bucks a year for his treatment, that's about as cheap as you can get. The transport to the hospital, the getting on the medication, buying that, staying overnight, heading back home. Uh, it's, it's about where you can hit about as low as that. Is he really consenting to 50 times 700, $35,000 per year uh, for that 1 in 700 chance? Okay, so if, say if... Say he pays his $35,000 chance, in essence, uh, and then he doesn't have the cardiovascular event, and he lives 10 more years to age 65. That's now cost about $3,500 per disability-adjusted life year for those next, each of those next 10 years. When you put him on that antihypertensive medication, is he really consenting to that? That's the question. And I would submit to you, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't consent to that if he really knew all that. So then we come into this, this concept of paternalism. Should we make that decision for him? Okay? The cost of treatment of stage 1 hypertension is $50 per year, $35,000 to prevent that uh, cardiovascular death that would save 10 years of life. Uh, so the WHO suggests the max DALI uh, ratio should be somewhere around two times the GDP, one to three, is used, uh, but perhaps a better threshold is if he's making $200 a year, if you're hanging with me here, and we go two to three times that, so $400 to $600 would be a reasonable cost per disability-adjusted life year. But he's got people in his family, okay? He's got three wives. So you got to divide that benefit or the cost, by four. So now it's $150 per disability-adjusted life year if you're using the, the gross uh, domestic product of that family. Um, and I would submit to you that's a better number to use as a gestalt as you proceed in treatment. Somewhat with me? So that sort of tones down our enthusiasm for taking U.S. treatment protocols and just exporting them and putting those in play in a resource-limited setting. A very nice study was done in 1998 by a, a, a group that looked at the country of Guinea 
And this is important to me because that's where we're currently starting a hospital. And uh, in, it, in fact, if you search on countries and find, to find a chart like this, you won't find them. This is uh, rather unique. But in here, what you see is uh, under $50 uh, per disability adjusted life year saved in this first group. And then we get to the $50 to $100 per life year saved. And then 100 to 300 and over 300. The stuff in here is the stuff you'd expect to see. It's treating malaria. It's treating pneumonia. It's treating diarrhea. Uh, it's doing a C-section for obstructed delivery. Vaccinating children, treating severe malnutrition, very, 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 very cost-effective. Fifty to hundred dollars per life year saved, still within this gentleman's budget. We have things like deworming, treating rheumatic fever, treating STIs, surgery for hernia, another very low-cost intervention, uh, and we get up here into the up to three hundred dollars per year life saved, and then we're getting a little more expensive stuff like treating severe pneumonia in adults in a hospital a little more resource-intensive, uh, but still within his budget, potentially, um, and uh, treating severe injury, trauma, and so on, stroke or heart attack treatment in the hospital, just bridging almost to the $300 per year life. And then we've got a number of other things in here, treating AIDS here at $1,300. This is back in 98. Uh, treatment costs have come down some. Treating hypertension, uh, their estimate at that time was 2281 per disability adjusted life you're saved rather than my 3,500. So I would say to you that, that this is the right thing to do. You need to know that he's really got hypertension, number one. Number two, you put that back in the hands of the community health worker. She follows up. We see if it's really uh, continuing to be elevated. And if it's stage two hypertension, we treat it. Why? Because that's cost effective. Let's look at another scenario. Same thing. We've got a, a hypertensive patient who's 35 years old, and he's more wealthy. Okay? Still, number needed to treat, about 700 per year to prevent a cardiovascular death. If the cost of treatment is our same $50 per year, we're going to treat him with hydrochlorothiazide, give him a year's worth of medicines, same approach, but it's going to then be doing it for someone who's a little more wealthy. Is he really consenting to that $35,000 to save, in his case, a lot longer uh, amount of life, and that would be maybe 35 years. So if he's going to live to age 70, you know, he's a little more wealthy, a little more resources in his family. Maybe he'll live a little bit longer than the farmer to age 70, so he gets 35 years for convenience of calculation, and that's then $1,000 per disability-adjusted life year. So given he's making 2000 per year, and there's six people in his family, then we take that three times the 2,000, that's 6,000, divided by the six, and we'd say, yeah, I just barely, but I would treat him, okay, with mild hypertension. Or you could change it to the 55-year-old who's not a farmer but a business owner, and he's got stage two hypertension. Well, now the numbers needed to treat change dramatically. Much more cost-effective because it's 35 people per year about, the numbers range from 25 to 45-ish, to prevent a cardiovascular death. So you do the calculation and you find out, yeah, this is pretty cost-effective in stage two. And, in fact, the uh, Ministry of Health in their Guine uh, Guide Therapeutique Nationale says, yeah, hypertension, this, this, is the, this, this is the best way to present it to you and me and the docs in the country. They just say, what is hypertension? Well, hypertension is a blood pressure in excess of 160 over 95. 
All right? So just redefine it. Your staff can now decide that the stuff under that's not really hypertension, except they know that the person who's wealthy, the government worker is coming for the private consultation, paying the big money to help support, support the mission of the hospital uh, ministry. Okay, maybe him we're going to treat. So who to treat depends on the risk factors, the access to care, availability, cost of meds, comorbidity, household finances, all of those things. Now, this is just like, ah, wait a minute, this is rationing. Sounds like Oregon. Hope you're not from Oregon. Um, No, uh, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that, you know, life is worthless in the farmer's case. This is very normal in our practice, right? I mean, everybody that comes into me with shoulder pain, I don't go, you know, send them for an MRI of a shoulder, right? It's not cost effective. I could discover some stuff, but it wouldn't be cost effective. My physical exam is sufficient. In fact, some studies would suggest better, uh, or dynamic ultrasound, whatever. So uh, examining those total costs per benefit are terribly important. Uh, And it's important because if that farmer you know, with those three wives, spends all that household income on himself, what are the wives going to do for their nutrition, health, various physical problems? Now you're taking money away from the household, giving it to just the one person. Yeah, he's a breadwinner. Maybe that's important. Of course, the wives are probably the ones working in the field doing the work. Anyway, uh, so what will happen if you don't treat? Well, we know there's some downstream bad stuff. We can get congestive heart failure, so that's not good. So you've got to kind of balance all of this stuff. If you do treat, then you base your treatment, you know, and your diagnosis on on exam, and you do very few labs, maybe one, maybe a creatinine. I would submit to you, you wouldn't do a potassium. Just make sure he eats a citrus fruit or a banana every day. You know, banana has 12 milliequivalents of potassium per moderate-sized banana. Um, Not do all this other junk. Start with thiazide diuretics. All that study years ago showed they're all about equivalent, all the antihypertensives. So start with the cheap stuff. Give them a long year's worth of uh, meds. See them back in a year, or the nurse sees them in his community. And uh, every five years or so, maybe check another uh, urine or creatinine, not more. So risk stratification then becomes terribly important. You're treating the people with very high risk. And the more wealthy, maybe medium risk or even low risk if they're quite well-to-do. But for the rest of us, you're focusing really on community transformation. You're not focusing on pills. You know, this is not a disease you're treating. This is a community issue. It's uh, redeeming the whole community to look at helping the weight uh, in that community to get down to ideal body weight to, you know, uh, adapt a Mediterranean or DASH diet and drop sodium and physical activity increase and limit alcohol. Those are very, very effective and in many cases uh, as effective as pills. And then you give them good patient education because he needs to know that hypertension uh, increases the risk of many diseases. He needs to take his medicine for life. Uh, and he's not going to feel better, Right? Any hypertensives don't make you feel happy or uh, more energetic. They sometimes do the opposite. But this is good for you. A study in uh, Vietnam looked at cost-effectiveness of various cardiovascular approaches. This is an eye glazer, sorry. But the, the 
the basic message here is that this stuff at the very bottom in the cost uh, VND and billions per disability just life year, this is the cost-effective stuff in that bottom circle. And what is it? It's a salt campaign, not to eat it, but to get rid of it in your diet, smoking cessation, and sort of a mass media campaign of both of those, and then treatment of systolic blood pressures over 160, okay? So that's what they're working on. They ignore the rest. Recent uh, study just a couple months ago from China uh, looking at cost-effectiveness of low-cost uh, low essential antihypertensive treatment uh, and, uh, and sort of modeling in this similar way what to do, uh, came out with a conclusion that treatment of stage 1 hypertension, even in China, with more resources, is not cost-effective. So for you IHI guys that are over there starting residencies and stuff, this is, uh, Chris and, and, uh, and John, this is really uh, important stuff for those docs to know that this is really, now interestingly, after they did this modeling and they come out with the conclusion at the end, uh, the paper that it's not cost-effective to treat it, they said, but we're, we're planning to treat it anyway. Uh, and you just kind of go, okay, whatever. <clears throat> it's a decision. Uh, WHO calls these best buys when you focus on the stuff that matters. It's ces uh, cessation of tobacco use. It's uh, limiting alcohol. It's, you know, getting rid of the unhealthy diet really working on the stuff that matters. And it does include some things, and we'll get to that, such as cervical cancer screening. If you uh, go to the WHO website, you'll look at uh, some of these, these uh, different uh, programs. WHO Choice, which is choosing interventions that are cost-effective. Uh, the One Health Tool, which is a software tool to sort of model this stuff in low- and middle-income countries, is, uh, is quite interesting. And some of you may find use for that if you're in uh, program development. And then economic evaluation, um, there's, there's publications on sort of looking at, at uh, this from this cost-effective standpoint. But the key here, though, is, is just like this China or the Guinea study, country-specific research is needed. And that's what some of you should be involved in. You know, that's kingdom work, figuring out what's really the right thing to do medically uh, in, a, in a particular place. So my conclusion here is, at this point, I can't or shouldn't practice there like I do here. Okay? Um, to some of you, that is a new idea because you've heard other things from certain people. So, uh, but I would submit to you that the World Health Organization, the ministries of health in every country on earth, expects you to adapt to their practice model with good reason. They've thought about it. They're policy wonks, and they've said, this is cost-effective. We shouldn't be treating that, and you should integrate with those national practice standards to the, to the degree that you've assessed them and found them uh, to be truly a good thing. Case number two is a little more difficult, so here we go. Seven-year-old boy in DKA presents to your mission hospital. Village has no electricity. He lives in poverty. He has very few resources. You've now got him out of DKA. The father is looking at the bill. Been in the hospital now two or three days, and you're on rounds in the morning. <laughs> Who's seen a case like this before? Yeah, hello, right? This is real life, guys. Um, 
And that's, of course, why it's in there, because I, I relate to this, having done this at least twice in my memory, exactly like this. And the father comes to you on rounds in the middle of 20 things you're thinking of and says, I'd like to take my son home to die. What are you going to do? You can, A, choose to get angry, give him the man up talk. Can't you supply the needs of your, you know, how are you going to say it? You're going to say something like, you've got to be kidding me. I just spent two or three days saving this child's life, and you are going to take him home to die? I saved his life. You know, you might not say it quite that badly as I would, okay? But I remember saying something in my memory, perhaps uh, overly self-deprecatingly, I remember something like that that I said to at least one of those fathers. I got angry. and uh, Or you could keep him hospitalized and think about it later. I think I did that with the second one. <laughs> You could find him the funds for home monitoring, insulin. You know, everyone pals together. He got a big resource fund for these kind of cases. Give him the stuff, pay his bill, make sure he can live for a while. Or you can have a compassionate discussion with the dad, present the gospel to the father, the child, pray with them, and discharge them home per the father's wishes. So, who wants to do a... <laughs> Can you relate to this? Yeah. So here's the the reality. The reality is that type 1 diabetes in low-income countries is a fatal disease. Our Mayo teams went down to Haiti after the earthquake, and we had a big get-together after the third team um, in a big room, and the pharmacists that had been on the first three teams, we subsequently sent nine more, You know, these are one-week teams. Not doing a ton, but, you know, everyone was going down to Haiti, right? Um, And and there was this pharmacist that kind of, with a lot of head nodding from the fellow pharmacist, said, we we couldn't believe it. I mean, we got down there, and they didn't have any insulin. We were seeing children with, like, you know, type 1 diabetes, and we didn't have insulin. We've got to send insulin down. We've got to send glucometers down. We've got to send syringes and needles. And, And, um, no, it's a fatal disease. I mean, they were wondering why the docs weren't, like, upset that they didn't have insulin. They never had insulin. They haven't been treating this ever. Uh, treatment, I would submit to you, isn't reasonable with, without some sort of intervention, some sort of aid mechanism. You can decide to do that. Uh, we were talking about this. Todd Stevens mentioned in his years working overseas that, you know, because these aren't common cases, you might have, you know, 6, 12 a year, People would just put the funds together and make it happen. Um, Some of those people lived near the hospital. I remember in Togo, there was a woman on staff that lived right by the hospital that was type 1 diabetic. She'd been kept alive many, many years or lived many years with her disease. But the the fact is that around the world, uh, in most low-income, in all low-income countries, uh, you're looking at an average somewhere around 3%, 2% of the population is receiving, uh, of type 1 diabetics, is able to receive uh, insulin. Or to say it another way, which is actually probably more correct, there is about 2% sufficiency of insulin to treat type 1 diabetics in low-income countries. So that hurts, right? Because now you're not just saying, well, I won't treat the hypertensive 55-year-old. You've got this 7-year-old kid that you just sent home to die. And 
So we've got these extremes, okay? And uh, someone will say, well, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't ethical. You know, I mean, I've, I've read Paul Farmer's work, and he talks about we should treat them just like we treat here. Well, he's talking about drug-resistant tuberculosis. That affects the whole world. Now we're talking about an individual. And we're talking about it in the, in the constraints of those resources. And so I'd submit to you this is a, a valid sort of uh, process you need to go through when you're working in this, in this sort of context. Concerns or questions before we move on to case three? We'll have time at the end for questions too. Keep processing. Case three is now a 60-year-old Togolese diabetic. This is a little less emotional. So he comes in with type 2 diabetes. He lives with his son, who's a subsistence farmer, but, you know, he's living there in the courtyard. The son's doing and the wives are doing the farming, and he's pretty inactive. He's obese. And so you'd advise weight loss exercise and an aspirin a day. You'd add some metformin. You'd check a creatinine and keep him on metformin if it was low, less than 1.5. Do that and check his cholesterol. Add a statin to keep a LDL less than 100. Or do that and also add an ACE, just in case, you know. <laughs> so, who wants to do A? Who wants to do B? Oh, come on. Thank you. Yes. Um, who wants to do C? You mean you're just going to put him on metformin and you don't care if he has renal failure? Actually, not. <laughs> <laughs> you might do C. Oh, okay. I got another one. Might even D. Check his cholesterol out of stat. Cameroon's a little higher in that low-income country. It's actually a lower middle income. No, it's not yet. It's still higher low income, right? Yeah. Anyway. Or you do D. Anyone want to do the whole enchilada? No one. Okay. So diabetes, type 2 diabetes in Africa in particular, I'm not as familiar with Asia, there's really a, a strange other type 2 diabetes there where you see patients that aren't obese, um, and we don't actually know what this is. I mean, there's lots of theories. It's, you know, from cyanide toxicity, from maniac that wasn't processed well during certain, and now, now there's some maniac processor, you know, maniac is tapioca for us, but they eat it as a staple starch. And um, in the olden days, it was soaked in water overnight, and then it was made into the, the porridge or the blob of stuff that stuff goes on, whatever. That, yeah, that sounded nice. Thanks, Steve. Uh, very appetizing. Um, it actually is very good. I shouldn't have said that. So, uh, or, you know, you could do it the common modern way, which is you have a little processor and you just grind it up and serve it. You get a lot of cyanide that way. And one idea is that this and plus some peripheral neurotoxicity, uh, neuropathies, uh, possibly is due to some of this. We don't know. But anyway, we need more country-specific research for that kind of diabetes uh, which in some areas is a majority of type 2 diabetes, not like the 90% we know here, which is obesity-related, inactivity-related, right? So what we do know from many, 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 many years of type 2 diabetes research is that type 2 diabetes has only a little to do in its management with hyperglycemia, glycemic management in terms of morbidity mortality, okay? It's getting rid of the obesity, the inactivity, uh, and other bad behaviors that mitigate risk. Correcting those reduce the risk, not treatment of the hyperglycemia. There's a radical concept. 
Not really. Um, many of you in academics know this, this whole discussion. You know, back in 93, there was the Mr. Fit trial. That said, a lot of what was killing diabetics, <laughs> there's my tail again, uh, is, uh, is something other than, you know, controlling blood pressure, stopping smoking, lipid-lowering aspirin. It's this residual that's probably hyperglycemia treatment. So we do that, and, uh, and then people will live longer. Uh, it didn't really pan out. You know, we had the UK PDS published, the 33 published in 98, that showed really um, not a benefit for, uh, for tight control. And then we said, well, maybe that wasn't enough N, so we need to do some more studies in advance in 2008, showed that there's no difference in cardiovascular death with tighter or less tight control in Accord. The same year showed you actually increase mortality if you control them more tightly under 7. Um, what number do you need to, need to control them to to uh, reduce mortality? Actually isn't known. Uh, but I would submit to you that the best way and the cheapest way is, like with everything else, it's mitigating risk by rational risk reduction. It's smoking cessation. It's weight loss. It's Mediterranean diet. It's blood pressure normalization because we know that helps. It's aspirin in males, not females. It's glycemic control, uh, which uh, is a minor benefit. Uh, and it's not lipid-lowering, except maybe if there's resources, and it's not self-testing. Good heavens, don't have your diabetic self-test unless they're on a varying dose of insulin. One medication decreases mortality with a STAR because just last month there was a study published in the New England Journal, I'm sorry, September, that showed empagliflozin. You know, how many of these names are they going to come up with? But it does have a Z. That's good. Uh, and that did show decreased mortality, just like metformin and we'll probably be using that in everybody until a follow-up study. Not manufacturer-sponsored, shows no one benefit. But anyway, um, <laughs> little cynicism maybe. Um, highest priority, lowest, reduce the cardiac risk, treat to symptoms, and you know, retinal monitoring, microbumin with ACE treatment, lowering fasting glucose as in income allows as a fifth one. So I would add the metformin. And I might do the creatinine, and maybe if it was less than 1.7 or so, I would take them off it uh, based on the newer research. You certainly can go at least up to that, maybe higher. Okay, here's a pregnant Pakistani woman getting into OB. It's family medicine. Healthy 30-year-old, gravid 2 para one comes in uncomplicated uh, prior pregnancy by a TBA in her home, presents for prenatal care at 12 weeks gestational age. You would. Recommend monthly visits every two weeks at term uh, because that's what we do here, right? Treat her the way you would treat her here. Or you'd recommend that she simply, again, deliver at home with a TBA, uh, care at the maternity in town, or recommend two tetanus toxoid treatments, if, uh, injections, vaccinations if she hasn't had them, iron, folate, insecticide-treated bed net. Oh, my heavens, how many things am I going to add there? Uh, you're going to give some uh, intermittent treatment to prevent <coughs> malaria, and you're going to do a prenatal visit every trimester with a midwife or a physician and a delivery with a midwife. Now we've spent a lot of money. So which one of these are you going to do? Who's going to just say, ah, we'll get her in there every month, and then at term we'll get her in every two weeks? That's what you do here. Oh, if you're opting to not treat her the way you would here. Okay. I recommend that she deliver at home again with the TBA. Maybe. Okay. Recommend care at the maternity in town. Sorry, TBA is a traditional birth attendant, untrained, grandma. Grandma's done three prior deliveries. She's highly experienced. Uh, or at the maternity in town. Or you get all this going. Start the tetanus. 
iron, folate, insecticide treated bed net. Yeah. So, you know, that we now have passed the MDGs. We're on to the sustainable, as we heard last night, the many, many, many uh, good things. But these were a little clearer to me what, how I achieve it. But reducing maternal mortality has been a goal of all of us, and it is dropping. But there's still just terrible high maternal mortality in these red countries. This is actually an older slide that I had in another talk, blah, blah. Um, inadequate prenatal care is standard in Africa. This is the antenatal care, at least one visit uh, in a prior birth in uh, the last three years by women. So you get down here to Ethiopia, 30% or so of women had one visit during their pregnancy. The problem with that and the problem with having TBAs, grandmas delivering babies, is that babies die and mommies die. It's bad. So you can't do that. And even if you train the traditional birth attendants, they don't retain that training in most studies, and uh, so there's still complications. Good maternity care requires everything that was there in the list of number four. And it's about the basic package that you can deliver that actually uh, still saves those lives, but does save the lives. So, yes, you want to be seeing them every trimester, iron folate, Fancidar, malaria treatment, prophylaxis, ID, uh, insecticide-treated bed nets, uh, two tetanus toxoids, and advise the location of delivery. Really, really, really short lady, you know, Batwa, Pygmy in uh, southwestern Uganda, probably in the hospital, because um, she's going to have obstructed labor. Uh, delivery by a midwife. So that's what I would submit to you. And in fact, you know, if she then needs a C-section, remember, this is a highly, highly cost-effective procedure doing a C-section. Acute surgery for most things like that that need surgery is very, very cost-effective and needs to be a part of uh, even the most basic mission hospitals and should be done by the nurses and scrub techs uh, and maybe if there's a family doctor, the family docs should be doing it. Right, John? Essential surgery, highly cost-effective. You look here at, at, you know, trauma, cleft lip repair. Yeah, that's something that family docs should be doing. Inguinal hernia repair, circumcision, cataract, you know, don't need an ophthalmologist. You do a few hundred of those and you're capable. And this is what the literature is now talking about. So there's a whole WHO group on, uh, on emergency and essential surgery that's preaching this around the world, and we can jump on this bandwagon. We don't need apologies to the surgeons in the audience. We don't need surgical qualifications as a five-year trained general surgeon. We need experience with the general surgeons getting that education, and so do our nurses and scrub techs. And then the world can see real uh, surgery provided to the majority of the population instead of what is currently done, which is these islands of excellence in a sea of misery without surgery. So this is what family docs should be doing, a broad range of things, and then the really complex stuff goes to their closely allied, closely tied task-sharing general surgeon at the university or tertiary care center hospital. Uh, yes, it's possible, Pax uh, has said, to train surgeons in Africa. They're doing a fabulous job, and I would just call on them once again to train the generalists and the nurses and the scrub techs in essential surgery. There, there was my preaching. Um,
Thank you. What about cervical cancer screening? So, uh, in fact, if you – that's a lot of text there, but it's just an excerpt from a, a paper in the New England Journal many years ago uh, that each word was important. So I put it in, and you can look at that. I won't read it. But the general gist of it is that, yes, cervical cancer screening, since cervical cancer is the biggest cancer killing women in Africa, is cost-effective, and it doesn't need to be done with pap smears. It's done with visualization under acetic acid. You spray it on the cervix. You look for acetyl-white changes, as, as the, and there's a talk on this if you're interested in more information uh, in one of the other sessions. Uh, so this should be part of what's going on in mission hospitals, at least in the higher-income, low-income countries. Uh, if, if the very basic countries like Guinea and Afghanistan, probably not. But, you know, certainly in Kenya, where in this study was looking at that modeling cost-effectiveness there. So these are highly cost-effective. It's prevention. It's lifestyle, public health. Sorry. Um, you know, if you dig latrines and get the kids washing their hands and have clean water and sex-side-treated bedbends vaccinations, you're going to prevent infections and the neglected tropical diseases, the helminths and so on. And if you get them with other lifestyle things like smoking, cessation, weight loss, exercise, a Mediterranean or plant-based diet, rather than what the rich often now are eating, we've exported our fondness for beef, and we need to keep them or get them eating plant-based diets, what we should be eating too. I like my steak. But, um, and aspirin, and that prevents these, these uh, chronic diseases. It means less tests, less technology, less specialists, less physician-driven. It's a teamwork of really lifestyle, public health, primary health care, avoiding futility, and it's person-centered or people-centered or community-centered care that's coordinated and comprehensive by an accessible primary care provider written by a pediatrician, now deceased, Barbara Starfield at Hopkins, uh, who preached this stuff for her whole career and had great data to show that, that countries with that kind of a health care model uh, had excellent health care despite low costs like China and Cuba. Um, I'm not communist. They just happen to do it right, and we need to copy some of that. Uh, Diagnosis, limited labs, limited imaging, careful exam, uh, and rare specialists because they're costly. It's syndromic diagnosis. So the WHO would say if you come in with a cough and a rapid respiratory rate and retractions and you've got some other finding, I would say on exam to suggest it, uh, then you diagnose pneumonia. You don't need a whole lot of other complexity. It's treatment that's efficient, okay? And so if, and if cost effective, so if, if the treatment saves a year of disability adjusted life uh, for less than three times the per capita household income, that's that metric that I was showing you how to calculate and hopefully do in your mind some, that then becomes cost effective. And it's not treating stuff that you know shouldn't be treated, especially not, you know, the stuff that we don't even shouldn't be treating here, like otitis media, right? I mean, the numbers need to treat like 15 otitis media, that one that benefits from the antibiotics. You should be delaying treatment, giving Tylenol. They all get better except, you know, the one out of 15. Then they need antibiotics. And, you know, if you at least do the 48-hour wait rule, then you're going to get rid of about 60% uh, that don't then get antibiotics. You've got to ba balance that number needed to treat with the number needed to harm, which in the case of otitis media is higher with augmenting. They're going to get diarrhea one in, one in four you know, and one in 15 benefits from the treatment. So got to weigh that. 
uh, abscesses, it's INDs, not antibiotics, and not expensive junk. Uh, and it's using essential medications, not using expensive medications. So there's an essential drug list the WHO puts out every year. Go to that. Memorize the list. Know what's on the list. Use the stuff on the list. Don't use the empagafloxazolin or whatever that was um, till it's validated, certainly, and less cost costly. Use the stuff that's cost-effective and is, is cheap. Uh, and, you know, that kind of medication can be bought from IDA Holland. So most of your mission hospitals are buying it. Most government hospitals in the world in low-income countries are buying it at wholesale cost from IDA Holland, the biggest supplier in the world. Uh, it's task-sharing or task-shifting, increasing access to more patients and lowering costs. The model was HIV-AIDS. You know, it was, it was technicians diagnosing and treating AIDS. They've done a fabulous job. Why can't we do the same for the rest of medical care and for surgery? It's avoiding futility. Intensive treatment of terminally ill patients shouldn't be done here. It shouldn't be certainly done there. Patients should be uh, assisted in facing death. You surround them with your health care team. Uh, as uh, uh, Vinod Shaw was talking about last night, the Emanuel Hospital Association, they have mission agencies that work with them that come in to the hospital and, and provide that kind of nurture and care uh, for patients that are suffering. That's the kind of model, hospice and chaplains and pastors, the whole community surrounding and being involved in, to bring real transformation in that community. It's this kind of treatment, right? Lifestyle, essential meds treating chronic diseases when it's cost-effective, task-shifting, balancing the number needed to benefit to the number needed to harm, and avoiding futility. And you can find out this kind of stuff uh, in the national treatment guidelines of most of those countries. So have that. Use it in your hospitals. Don't sort of like shun it. You know, there's this new faith-based study we were talking about in the, the pre-workshop uh, from The Lancet recently that kind of was – condemning faith-based institutions because they're like a different silo. They're ignoring what the government is saying we should be doing and the WHO is saying we should be doing, and we're paralleling in our own little silo. No, we need to integrate with the national health care system and do what they've determined is really cost-effective. And some of the books that can help is Dennis Palmer's uh, – I'm sorry, I don't have the picture of your handbook uh, – up there, or the Oxford textbook or handbook of tropical medicines, using some sort of resource, because you probably aren't going to have your smartphone working there. So you've got to have some book, you know, in your pocket. And uh, I sure always did. Man, you've got to have those kind of references. And then do that mental math. Does it really benefit? This produces family docs that are behaving well in a low-income country, following the Ministry of Treat uh, Health Treatment Guidelines, cost-effectively providing care and only treating those chronic diseases when patients are at high risk for patient-oriented outcomes that matter, not for numbers like blood pressure is lower. Wow, that's really good. I hope we've accomplished these learning objectives today, and I'd be happy to take your questions and hope you have some. Yes. Whoa. 
Um, you know, x-ray is useful and uh, pretty, uh, I wouldn't say essential. X-ray isn't essential for high-quality care, but it certainly helps in the cases of trauma, doesn't it, uh, uh, to get the, uh, the fracture aligned and so on. But you can do that on physical exam, and certainly ultrasound, uh, you can accomplish that. So if you, you, know, you can diagnose fracture with ultrasound, you can uh, ascertain alignment, um, if you've got a, you know, a linear uh, transducer and so on. So uh, ultrasound probably is, we're moving that direction. Uh, in our hospital in Guinea, we did put in a digital x-ray unit, but it's pretty costly. And after it took 32 pictures, it broke. That was lovely. Ultrasounds are a little more durable. Uh, now, you know, yeah, so uh, dental, yeah, that's I mean, another, another great option, but I don't think that should be an either-or. You know, and, and uh, there's, there's folks here like Joel Michelson uh, teaching a dental uh, section. Um, he's from Rochester, our church, and great guy involved in uh, training dental workers, pastors who do dental care, kind of like the Emanuel Hospital Association uh, in India where they've trained uh, pastors to do basic medical care, and they call the doc when they need to start an antibiotic, and, you know, they SMS the prescription to the patient. I mean, this is cool stuff, and it's really working well for dental care to get that down into the trenches. Um, and then you've got an entree for the gospel as well as really, you know, that, that sounds utilitarian. You've got transformative care. You're not just doing spiritual care. You're helping their mouth. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Hi. Welcome. Um, uh, for me, sometimes it's really easy to understand when we're talking about infectious diseases and cost effectiveness or obstetric care. Uh, it's simple, right? Yep. But the MCD world is a different discussion because I completely agree with what you said. But three minutes after that, I kept thinking this discussion about cost effectiveness is placed in the reality of a broken system. We have a low-risk patient that, in a broken healthcare delivery system, will become a high-risk patient throughout time, right? So I, my duality in this type of decision-making that happens to me every time that I'm facing this is, okay, I need to think long-term, too, in the individual case management that I'm doing, because there, there is a broken healthcare delivery system. I have an open window, a window of opportunity with a patient right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I should do everything. Yep, yep. But there's a reality of a window of opportunity, especially you, in You make a good point. So, uh, you know, the, so her point is, I think the rest of you could hear, you know, do you treat this patient with a non-communicable disease? You know that this might be the only time you get to see them or they get to see anyone. System's broken. Someone's got to intervene. It's 160 or 159 over 99 uh, was the number I uh, concocted there to be difficult. Um, and, you know, maybe it means then that they stay in the little pavilion beside your hospital and you recheck it for two or three days running and before you send them home. So you do make the diagnosis there because there's not a community health system. But hopefully if you're there a while, and I would submit to you that you shouldn't, be going to places intermittently and ever prescribing this stuff. You know, this kind of duffel bag medical care where you bomb into a place and do hit-and-run medicine, leave without any continuing care. That's unethical. May I just say that? Or you can throw tomatoes if you want. 
but we, we shouldn't be doing that. So we're there long term. We've got relationships on the ground. There's a clinic. If, if you want to do the first thing, if that's your thought, then cancel the trips for half of your three-quarters of your team and use that money to, you know, hire a national nurse and build a clinic, and then they've got care forever. That's healthcare capacity building. Uh, right, so they're going to be there, and you're going to develop the system. You're going to develop that community health system that, like Dave Stevens did at Tenwick in, in uh, 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 whoop, whoop, name, anyway, what, at Vanga. Um, Dan Fountain, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm surgeon, develops this massive community health system. You know, that's, that's, that's what we should be doing long term. So it is functional. So you can send them to the community health worker in the village. But you're right. That is hard. Dennis. So uh, it turns out, in my experience, that this is more difficult. Than <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the word paternalism. <laughs> My experience is that patients, uh, wherever you find them, uh, and in mission hospitals around the world, uh, especially in Africa, patients travel long distance to get there, expending enormous resources to get there in the hopes that you will be able to help them with a difficult problem. And so that's the setting that you find yourself in in many Mm. places. Uh, You're quite right. And so... How deciding how much money you spend and how much uh, and how you handle those resources are very difficult uh, issues. I think you're right. The second thing is is that uh, you know the African healthcare system is based on extended family, so it's when you the 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 calculation is always more complex than just that's right because they can go get the uncles to contribute Mm -hmm. nephews who work in the city who send back money. Quite correct. And so they, when they come to you, they're, you know, those calculations are very difficult because you don't know all that information. Yep. And exactly how you respond is, um, you know, it turns out that patients want to get better no matter where you find them at. And if you have a treatment that can help them uh, all, all around the world, that's what they want. And so, so let me, yep, and, and, Dennis is right, and that's a mouth of great experience speaking. So, listen, that I am not saying that this is easy. I, I made it easy because of the way I created the, the cases. Of course I did. Um, and it's not easy. There is complexity there. But I am calling for some reasoned analysis, um, number one, for balancing harms and costs. Number two, for really integrating with the Ministry of Health where it's functional, uh, and most places it is to some degree, giving them the respect they're due for making these difficult decisions about who should be treated, who shouldn't, what diseases should be treated, what shouldn't. Uh, and number three, it's, it's, uh, it's really sort of uh, trying to get a feeling for the household resources of the patient. I, th- I think a lot of that is done by Gestalt, the way they're dressed, what they came. I realize these are kind of, you know, pigeonholing. But you're trying to get a feeling for, for that before you start a treatment that they're going to be on for life, hopefully. And number four, it's making sure they understand if they're not feeling well, as you said. So you, you set up the case where it was a little easier for me to um, challenge this. So if they're not feeling well, 
it's probably not because of their hypertension, right? I mean, he was 159 over 99. So he's not feeling well, not because he's hypertensive. He's got something else going on. He's got migraines. He's got, you know, worms. He's got what? Who knows what? TB, HIV, blah, blah, blah. You've got to diagnose that. But uh, so if he thinks, and this is often the case is what I'm submitting to you, if he thinks the reason he's feeling poorly is his non-communicable disease, you know, he's got the NCD of hypertension, which is, you know, now developing all over the world because of bad diets and all of that. True. But he's not feeling badly because of his 159 over 99. And when you put him on therapy, he thinks, number one, that's what you're saying. You're treating what, what is ailing him. And number two, he's going to get better by you treating him. And then he goes away and he stops his medicine after a period of time because he feels no better, feels worse. Um, so I, I think we need to have that. Um, which I know you do, have that kind of uh, nuanced approach that makes sure that we aren't giving the wrong message to the patient that if you take this pill, it will save your life. Well, in that case, you know, one in 700 chance of it saving your life. <laughs> and that changes the picture. Ma'am. Here, here. So, right. So here we are in the U.S., you know, twice the uh, uh, per capita GDP expenditure on, on health care of any country on earth with some of the worst outcomes of any because we're spending the money in all the wrong places. That's exactly right. And so we've got to start focusing on the stuff that matters. Uh, so who was first here? Um, please. Thank you. Thank you. No, please. So good question. You know, what's what's been my experience advising dietary change for the farmers, you know, got a fairly fixed diet. It's not like they're going into the market and buying, you know, the cow. Um, and in those cases, by and large, the traditional diet is a healthy diet. So where it goes wrong is money comes into the household because the son's making a bit or whatever, and the, so dad is you know, getting money from the folks in the city or whatever, and then they're buying stuff that costs more, or they're adding a lot of salt to their diet you know, for great flavor and because it really tastes great. And my, my experience is when I point that out to them, uh, that, you know, that, that forgetting the brand of the salt bouillon that was especially in West Africa. Maggie, thank you. You know, and, and, you know, so if they're throwing that into the sauce, well, you just, you know, it's like soy sauce, you know, all those things we got to kind of, and, and you point that out and they smile or laugh and, and then they go away and they change that. Um, so I, th I think you can make changes. And if they understand that it's between that and taking a pill, hmm, let's see, what's uh, more cost-effective? You know, or what, what would you like to do? We can treat this either way. Either way, you'll have about the same outcome. Maybe maybe it's not. Maybe they're not salt-sensitive, but certainly losing the weight, getting active, um, so on. Yeah, so I think, I think it is a holistic approach, and we can get the community health workers really working with that. But you're absolutely right. The person in the, in the village who's, you know, got to basically – plant-based diet anyway and rarely has, you know, meat and other unhealthy things, you know, as long as they're getting enough protein. Uh, 
time is up, and uh, you're welcome to come up here and talk with me. Uh, appreciate your attendance, and uh, and uh, the, thank you very much. Don't forget to do your evaluations. <laughs>